You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. I am really pleased to welcome uh, a new friend, Daniel Eck from Spotify. He's the CEO, but also an old friend and a former student who's now a partner at Kleiner Perkins. Um, he's going to do a, an interview with Daniel today, um, and we'll, we'll learn everything there is to know about this person. You uh, were an MBA here, as well as an undergrad, and has been a venture capitalist for the last few years. But um, how many of you have heard of Spotify? Okay, how many of you have used it? Yeah, I tend to use it. So I think we know what it's all about, but now we get to learn about this fellow, Daniel, who is... Uh, been doing companies half his life, and he's still under 30. So let's welcome Daniel Chiwa. All right. Uh, thank you, Tom, and thank you, everybody, for having us today. It's a real privilege to be here. As Tom mentioned, I was a student here for uh, many years. And uh, to be here interviewing my friend Daniel, the co-founder and CEO of Spotify, is an honor. Uh, Daniel is one of those really rare, talented entrepreneurs that has a compelling vision to disrupt an extremely large industry by building just a great product. And I'll, uh, I'll tell you a brief little story that encapsulates that. Uh, Daniel and I met at the end of 2010. We were introduced by my partner, Mary Meeker. Daniel happened to be in town. And after a strategy offsite that we had done with our firm, Mary said, hey, Daniel's here. You know, we're at a hotel. And he came by and we sat for an hour and a half. And he told us his vision for what was going to happen in music, what was going to happen with mobile, what was going to happen as all of these things came together to form a platform that he called Spotify. And after the meeting, I grabbed Mary and my partner, Bing Gordon. And I said, Bing, drive Daniel back. To, the ho to wherever it is that he's staying and invest as much money as you possibly can in this company. <laughs> and we managed to a few months later. Um, so sure. Daniel, you've had an extraordinary entrepreneurial track record. You founded your first company when you were 14. You were then the co-founder and CTO at Stardoll, then the CEO of uTorrent, and then the co-founder and CEO of Spotify. Um, each of those have been themselves big ideas attacking large markets in a disruptive way. How do you think about entrepreneurship? Well, so first to begin, I, I never really thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I thought of myself as there was all these interesting problems around the world, um, and I kept being annoyed at them. You know, I was, there was things around, that happened around me in the world that was annoying me. And um, I was constantly talking to people about it, and I realized there was more people than me that was annoyed by these things. So I asked them, so what are we doing about it? And no one was really doing anything about it. So I eventually felt that, hey, I had to do something about it myself. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, when I started my first company when I was 14, I never really thought of it as a company. Again, there was a need um, at that time, this is 1997, where a web page was still, you know, there was consulting firms charging 50 grand, at least, you know, in Europe where I'm from, um, to create a web page. And uh, I said, that's not really that hard. Uh, and I kept telling people that. And so they're like, well, can you help me do it? Mm -hmm. So eventually I started doing that. And uh, this is as I was uh, pretty much in elementary school. Um, and um, you know, what I realized is I did one and I got a bit of money from it and I was like, okay, this is pretty good. And I kept, you know, doing more and more and more. And eventually what ended up happening is everyone that was pretty good at math, I taught how to program HTML. And all the ones that were really good at drawing, I taught Photoshop. So we ended up having, you know, the whole class pretty much producing work, um, you know, um, after school hours. Um, and building web pages for people, and that was my first company. Not that I really, you know, cared about the fact that it was a company. I cared about the fact that here's a problem, and people were, kept pinging me about that, and I wanted to deliver great results. So that's kind of how it started. So, you know, my definition of an entrepreneur is someone that has an itch for a problem, and that, you know, you're annoyed enough by that problem to actually go out and seek a solution for it. So you grew up in Sweden. Uh, outside of Stockholm, or in Stockholm? In Stockholm. In Stockholm proper. What's the culture like there, and how did it shape this problem-solving-oriented entrepreneurial 
uh, approach? Sure. So, um, you know, I look at Sweden actually as kind of an interesting one because typically we have a very strong engineering tradition. Mm -hmm. um, and but people were looking to go, uh, looking to go to big companies like Ericsson and um, in certain cases, IKEA, H&M. There's all these massive mm -hmm. companies, mm -hmm. even though we only have a population of 10 million people. Um, but there was a very strong engineering tradition there. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about Sweden is the fact that it has enormous uh, amount of broadband penetration mm. and the speed of that broadband penetration. If you walk in central Stockholm today, there's 4G speeds with 60, 70, 80 megabits just uh, running through people's computers. Um, and I remember I got my first fixed connection in 1998 and that was an 8-megabit download, 1-megabit upload. Um, in year 2000, I had a 10 megabit download and 10 megabit upload. One year later, I'd, I had a 100 megabit download. Wow. So, who's got a 100 megabit in their home? No one. Okay. U.S. infrastructure. <laughs> well, the interesting part was like, so think, this is 12 years back. Yeah. So, um, and, and especially if you think about this in the context of what I'm doing, which mm -hmm. is distributing media. Like, it, it was pretty obvious at the time that we had this fantastic infrastructure. So what were we going to use it for? Like, downloading a web page took, you know, two secs. So, yeah. okay, uh, we started downloading more stuff. We started downloading music. We started downloading video. And it was like, these services don't exist. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think the culture in Sweden was... Uh, very much prone for going to big companies, but with a great engineering tradition. Mm -hmm. um, but there was also all these people that wanted to consume content, and yeah. a lot of content. And um, I think that was really unique about Sweden. Mm. So you were 14 when you started your first company. Then Stardall, you were? Um, Stardall was 21, 22. 21. You took over as the CEO of uTorrent when you were? 22. 22, and then... Uh, Spotify, you were 23. 23 when you started it. Was youth an advantage in starting those companies? Yeah, definitely. Like, um, I, I think, you know, if you ask entrepreneurs, would you have done it yeah. if you knew how hard it would be? Most mm -hmm. would have said no. Mm -hmm. um, but because you're young, and in my case, you're quite naive, you kind of go into situations like, hey, this can't be too hard. Um, <laughs> when, when I started Spotify, I didn't actually know that I needed licenses from record labels. So I was like, well, you know, we'll, we'll this is easy. You stream it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, I got introduced to some people and they said, no, 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 you kind of need some licenses. Well, that can't be too hard. You know, surely they must be up for it. It took me about two and a half years later to kind of get <laughs> started. Um, but, it, you know, I think that's what kept me going because I saw the solution. I didn't see the problems in the way. I think many people, as they get older and they get wiser, and the, the great benefit you guys have here is you're not kind of destroyed by this fact that you think the pattern, what I call pattern recognition. You don't really have that. So you, instead, you see, oh, well, um, this is not how I want it to work. So you actually go out and you seek a solution. Uh, where a lot of people, if they have a lot of experience, will say, well, this is not going to work because of X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that most things does work. And what I think is like the most inspiring thing ever, and I say this, you know, people come up to me and they ask me about ideas for companies. And I said, in all honesty, I have no idea. In, in fact, what's, what's going to work or not? In fact, um, I think this was like 04 or something. Someone approached me with this company called Skyper, and they said, you know, we want to do this thing where people can sit in front of uh, their computers and make phone calls, and I'm like, oh, I'm never going to work. <laughs> um, and that turned out to be a pretty big thing, too. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, I'm, I'm not like a visionary, um, a visionary person in terms of, like, that I know what will work and not. What I do know, however, is that if you keep executing, like, the right person will figure out a way to sell umbrellas in Sahara because mm -hmm. they'll figure out that it's for some protection or they'll figure out a way where it can generate electricity or something like that. But it's, it's really all about execution. And ideas is 5%, execution is 95%. Yeah. So you've been called the most powerful man in the music industry and alternately music's last best hope. This kind of on the polar spectrum of commentary about the industry. Um, at Stanford, what, what the students are often taught and talk about is the 
big idea or the big, hairy, audacious goal. What's the big idea or BHAG behind Spotify? Um, sure. So um, first, I'm not sure that I actually agree with uh, either you know, of those characterizations. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that what the press says. But um, look, in, in my case, it's quite simple. Um, I grew up in Sweden. I had access to all this broadband. It was so obvious to me after getting Napster, Kazaa, and all these services that this is the way that people want to consume music. And the more I started researching it, it actually turned out that there was a half a billion people that consume music that way. And at, at the same time, uh, musicians were struggling and they can't make money out of music anymore, so they keep doing it for touring and they kept doing all these things. And for me at the time, it was quite obvious that, and, and when we started Spotify, this is in 06, um, iTunes still sold DRM track. Um, you know, they were copyright-protected songs. You couldn't play them anywhere. Um, the quality was 160 kilobits. Mm. And at the same time, I could uh, go to, you know, a Pirate Bay or a Kazaa and download the same song pretty much as fast in lossless quality and with no protection whatsoever. So it was obvious to me that for the first time in history, the pirated product was actually a lot better than the one you could buy. So mm -hmm. no wonder why people use pirated services. So what we tried to do with Spotify, and the goal was to create a service that was actually better than piracy. Mm -hmm. It was simpler, it's easier for people to discover and share music. It's really all that. And we realized that if we could do that, maybe we could take a big chunk of the 500 million people that consume music <coughs> illegally. Yeah. And by doing that, um, you know, getting the music industry back to growth again where artists can keep making great music that we all can enjoy. And in a nutshell, that product offering is how much money for which services here, here in the U.S.? Sure. Um, but even so, like the, the vast majority of people in the world does not spend any money at all on yeah. music. Yeah. You know, think of the facts. If you compare over history, like how long it took Elvis Presley for a billion people to know him. Mm -hmm. And then think of the same amount of time it took Lady Gaga to get known by a billion people. So today, two years after Lady Gaga got released, more than a billion people would be able to hum one of her songs. It's pretty extraordinary. But yet, Lady Gaga had in the same time sold less than 10 million records, mm -hmm. where Elvis Presley sold half a billion records. Mm -hmm. it, it's quite dramatic shifts. And that kind of tells me that like, we live in this world where music obviously is spreading. And they're spreading through people sharing music with each other, no longer through radio and so on. And by them doing that, um, and if they can do that in a legal way, whether we monetize that with advertisements or get a few percentage po points of people to start converting into paying for it um, by becoming subscribers, um, we can grow the music industry. So that was the idea. So the music industry itself, though, is this incredibly hairy, Byzantine oligopoly with country by country management and complex deal structures that go to you know, artists and producers and lyricists and everything. So when if you're advising entrepreneurs here thinking about approaching a complicated industry, what's the best way to look at that? Because complicated industries tend to change slowly. Sure. Um, so I won't say that it hasn't been tough. I mean, it's been an enormous process. And I think, you know, people often ask me, like, what my trade is. Uh, you know, are you a genius? Are you a visionary? Are you all of those things? And I'd say, no, I'm not. Like, the one trade that I have is I have this itch, and I never, ever, ever give up, which means that I keep going until I succeed if I'm convinced about something. So, you know, again, if you're going to tackle an industry with, you know, big incumbents and, you know, uh, big hairy structures, as you would put it. Um, I think the most important thing is have a lot of patience to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, choose an area where you think you can truly matter. Like what most people don't know about Spotify is that we actually started in Sweden, um, my home country. And what was interesting about that was the fact that the Swedish music market was really, really small to begin with. Mm -hmm. And it was basically non-existent after many, many years of piracy. Because again, we had that infrastructure where people could easily share stuff. So 
you know, we started in an area where it was not much to lose for the music industry to try mm -hmm. it, and we quickly proved that. And we then went on to the rest and of pro Europe. Proved what? You proved we that proved that the market grew. In terms yeah, of dollars. We, we we proved that the market grew. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at it already now, Sweden is one of the very very few markets around the world that is now actually grown mm -hmm. and become larger mm -hmm. the last two three years than it was prior to you know Spotify existed or even it's getting back to the place where it was in the heydays of yeah. 2001. Yeah. So, you know, we, we proved that the model worked and that the music industry started growing again in that market. And as that happened, it got more of a pull where more and more markets started wanting us. And um, in our case, it's quite famous now, but um, for us, it was obviously a big, big process of getting to the US because that was the kind of big holdout for us. Um, but we eventually convinced um, again, by the strong results we had in Europe, that the model worked. So the record labels here in the U.S. is like, okay, we're we're going to put you guys in the world's largest music market, where we did in fact have a lot to lose. Mm -hmm. And the results so far has been amazing. Yeah. And um, you know, again, same thing here. People are really taking Spotify to their hearts, and it's so amazing that so many of you guys are using it too. So. I think one of the really distinctive elements of this new generation of entrepreneurs compared to Web 1.0 is the Web 1.0 guys were primarily technologists. They solved hard technology problems. In this kind of social mobile world, the great entrepreneurs are product people. They focus on product because a lot of the infrastructure around technology has been solved. So when you come and think about solving a product problem, what are the principles that you use to, uh, that you apply to build a product like Spotify, like Spotify Mobile, and then we'll talk a little bit about platform. Sure. Um, well, so, so first to begin, like I actually started out as an engineer. Um, so, and I think this is really, really important because um, as an engineer, you kind of get taught the ways, um, you get taught the basic te technologies and what's actually possible. Yeah. Um, and how to construct solutions around that. And I think, you know, I like the thinking solution oriented. So I think that's helped me. I would say today that I'm actually a pretty crappy programmer. So don't try me out on that one. Um, but, um, you know, my way of looking at an interface is still by asking myself the question, why is it there? What is it, what's the purpose of that interface? And I, I think a lot about what, what's the shortest way between, um, Point, from point A to point B, and how can you assume as much as possible for the user in that process for making that journey shorter? And that means that you quite often have to go through iteration or iteration of designs until you got that one. Mm -hmm. And what's also so fantastic with today's platforms is we got this really rigid testing infrastructure where we can actually test things. So um, at Spotify, for instance, it, we quite often, if we're unsure ourselves about um, you know, certain decisions we make, we quite often make three or four of them and test them at the same time and see how users are reacting to it. And um, you know, a few years back, that infrastructure was really expensive to build, yeah. but now it kind of exists on CAN and a lot of people can try it. So you know, um, I, I, I just say, like, think about what it is you want to solve and be really crisp about that, especially if you're a team of people. Like, what is this page designed to solve? Or what is this product? Is, um, what, what's the ultimate solution here? And then think about what is the shortest way from point A to point B. And I mean, there, there's many ways to think about that. Like, in, in a product like Spotify, the probably optimal way is if we knew everything about you mm -hmm. so that we can instead suggest music so that you could just get it um, and just press play and it would work and you just got perfect music. Yeah. It turns out that that problem is incredibly hard to solve from an engineering standpoint. So we might not go there. So where do we take it from there? How do we ratchet that down? Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that it's probably good if you give us a song mm -hmm. so that we can then in turn recommend you more songs. Mm -hmm. Or in your case, if we can uh, get you to search the song and then sh uh, show you, you related songs and related artists so that you can keep navigating and kind of going deeper and deeper. So I think um, you know a lot about what is the perfect and ideal solution to a problem and then you kind of ratchet it down from there. So in the case of 
um, platform, which you guys just announced. And platform is, well, I'll let you talk about platform, but how would you talk, how would you think about that in terms of the problem that's being solved and then what features you guys have put in place and what features you want developers to be building? Sure. Um, so first, I think we live in a world where we get access to two super platforms, Facebook and, um, you know, the iPhone and the Android mm -hmm. ecosystem with smartphones. And I think that's really interesting because if you think back five years ago, none of those really existed. Mm -hmm. So five years ago to this date, Facebook kind of announced their platform. Five years ago, um, I think it got on no sale. IPhone. There was no iPhone, yeah, for instance. Yeah. That was June. So if you think about that, in a very short period of time, the world has changed. And you now have these amazing channels where you can get products out to people, hundreds of millions of people that are actively looking for consumption experiences. So that didn't exist. So if we now take the Spotify platform, because what Spotify really has built is we built this music platform. And what we realized is music is something that's really, really broad. And it means something, um, it's really unique to you as an individual. And there's a lot of different use cases. So use cases could be you're going to a party, um, you want to figure out with your friends what kind of songs you want to listen to. Um, other use cases is like a lean back radio type experience. A third use case is lyrics, which is really popular, especially in Asian countries, uh, where you want to sing karaoke next to the songs. Um, out of tune like me. Uh, <laughs> or, um, you know, there's um, ways where just curation of content, you know, Rolling Stones does it for a certain type of audience, Pitchfork for a more kind of indie audience. So what we realized is, why don't we just, because there's so many problems with licensing and, you know, getting all these rights, why don't we instead for developers and entrepreneurs take away that hurdle and just expose the music and let people hack their own solutions of what they want to do with Spotify and basically crowdsource the innovation. Um, and we thought that was like a really, really important step. Um, and so far, you know, we've seen everything from games, uh, music quiz type of games to... Um, uh, Last week, someone actually created a dating app where it compares people's music taste, um, and thereby you're supposedly going to match better. I don't know whether that will work, <laughs> by the way, but uh, try it out. Um, so so there's, there's really all these types of um, use cases, which isn't like in Spotify's core interest. Mm -hmm. We want to be um, the music object, and we want to make that available across the entire web and across all these different platforms. But we can't solve every single use case. And that was the sort of core notion with the platform. Yeah. So there's another important platform that you mentioned that you guys are integrated closely with, Facebook. And uh, you guys, you know, it's the week of the Facebook IPO, so we have to talk about it. Uh, you guys did two really important integrations with them in terms of the playlists and then being an open graph, the first open graph partner, and probably the most successful one by a pretty wide margin. Where did the idea come from to be just tied so deeply into Facebook that the identities were shared and all the content was really streamed directly into the social graph? Um, so, so there's a couple of different events that have happened all through the years. Um, and um, from my side, I will say, you know, what, what I learned from Startle, which was the company I was at before, what, what Startle basically is, most of you are not in the audience for that, um, it's, it's a site for young girls 8 to 15 where you can dress up virtual paper dolls. It's crazy and it's got more than 100 million registered users playing around with um, all these dolls and sharing them. Um, and, and what I realized was that, um, and, and part of why I didn't stay with Startle is I kind of intuitively understood like wow this is cool that so many people are playing around with these dolls but I didn't understand why because mm. it wasn't my itch <laughs> um, which is hopefully you know a good thing <laughs> in my case um, but you know now nobody's going to admit to being a star yes user exactly <laughs> yeah um, well you know so but what I realized at that point, and, and this is, you know, 05, 06, so this is way before Facebook really became what it is today, is 
there was all these destinations around the web where you uploaded your profile page, uh, up, upload your profile pic, um, you know, you wrote about yourself, you had your interest. And I was like, well, we keep repeating the same information over and over. C certainly someone's got to figure out, um, you know, a way where you could utilize that instead. That was the first notion, and this was in 05, 06. I didn't know it was going to be the social graph or the Facebook platform or any of that, but it just felt intuitively that this is the way the world's got to work. Um, and then the second thing was really around that I thought music was one of the most social objects mm -hmm. there is. And if you think about it, music... You know, I can send any one of you a piece of music and you can probably relate to it. Even if I send it in a different language, you will know whether it's a happy song or if it's a sad song. And if I send a Lady Gaga song to someone in uh, Japan, they're going to understand that just as well if they send you uh, another song. It really transcends culture, it transcends, um, you know, geographies and all that. So it's a really powerful social object that communicates an emotion. Um, and then if you look at it from Mark's perspective, which is also kind of interesting, because Mark, um, you know, created, as he created Facebook or the Facebook, he was actually working on a project at the same time called Wirehog. Mm -hmm. I remember. Yep, mm -hmm. um, you do. And um, as far as I know, I don't know exactly what Wirehog was, but it, I think it was a way for people to share music mm -hmm. on Facebook. Right. So... Eventually. And they thought that was going to be the company that was going to be successful. Yes, exactly. So they thought the music company was going to be successful. Mm -hmm. But I think Sean Parker, which is the third part person in the story, managed to convince um, Mark that that was an incredibly bad idea, uh, <laughs> wise of his you know, past experience from Napster. Um, so they killed that and eventually focused on Facebook instead, right. which seemed like a pretty smart choice. Um, and so... I think we all kind of had this notion. Mm -hmm. I had the notion about, uh, you know, the fact that, that there should be a platform where people have their identity. Mm -hmm. And Mark had the notion that music was a really strong social object. Mm -hmm. So we got together one day, and this is probably like two years ago, and we started talking about, um, you know, how cool it would be if people could more easily share stuff on Facebook around music. Um, and we spent more and more time talking about it um, as well. And so, Sean was also part of those discussions. And um, I, I think we just ended up in a place where it was quite obvious to us that this would be a great user experience. And that's really, you know, how I think about things and how Mark thinks about things. So it was kind of a natural evolution about it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about leadership because Spotify is an interesting company. You have a pretty sizable office in Stockholm. You've got a pretty sizable office in London. You're building one here on the West Coast. You've got a team in New York. And how do you manage and lead a group that's scattered over you know, two and a half continents and four offices? Yeah. Um, first off, it's incredibly tough. Um, even with all the um, modern technologies we have of video chat and Skype and phone calls and all those things, um, the fact that you have proximity just the amount of discussions you can have by just sitting next to someone matters a lot. Mm. So what I do, first and foremost, I, I sit out in a sort of open office space. I don't have like a particular room or anything. I just sit outside because I love hearing what people are talking about and engaging in conversations. The second thing is I travel a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I spend a good amount of my time in all the cities you mentioned. So I'm here, you know, six, seven times a year. I'm in New York every month. I'm in London um, a lot of times too, and I'm yeah. in Stockholm. So in my case, um, I don't think the physical presence um, can really be replaced yet with mm -hmm. sort of video or anything else. Mm -hmm. So... Um, First and foremost, a lot of it is just meeting people, sitting down, talking to them, and, and, and um, talking to the team. But I also think, you know, we, we do things um, where we, we have uh, virtual town halls, where we every two Fridays, um, I, I, depending on where I am in the world, stand up and kind of talk to the company about what we're doing, and people can ask questions. Um, Spotify is a pretty big company. We're like 500 people, so... 
Um, it's a lot of people, but it's really been one of those things that we've always had across our company. We want to share as much information as possible. Mm -hmm. And if you, even if you kind of look inside of Spotify, you'd find that like pretty much all of our metrics are available to everyone. Because we think that by empowering people uh, with data, they're going to make much smarter decisions. Um, and a lot of that really is by sharing information. And I'd say the third thing is actually a thing John Doerr um, taught me, which is this process called OKR, which is um, a very simple management um, methodology that a lot of companies use, Google, Facebook, Spotify, Zynga, Zynga, a lot of others, which is really, really simple. You put up an objective that you want, for instance, the whole company to do, and you focus on three to five key results. And those have to be uh, measurable results. So in the case of Spotify, it could be you know, grow the amount of subscribers by 50% mm -hmm. this quarter. That would be a great target, by the way. Um, and um, Everyone sign up. <laughs> yes, exactly. Then we've solved it. Um, but, um, and, and that way, it kind of distills throughout the organization. So everyone in the company knows what the, the company's target is for the quarter. Um, but then also everyone can relate to that as they make their own targets and can kind of map that against the overall target. Mm. Um, but it's hard work. Mm. And most of your management team is probably more, is probably more experienced and older than you. And a lot of the entrepreneurs in the crowd probably will have this experience as young leaders of companies. What advice would you share with them? Well, um, what I think distincts A players from B players is that you want to surround yourself with people that are smarter than yourself. Um, so my advice is don't be scared of the fact that there are people coming in with a lot more experience than yourself. Uh, look at that as an opportunity instead to learn from. And in my case, you know, I, and I say this to my team every day, that it's a blessing because I get to come in and I get to learn from really smart people. Um, so I think that's really important. But the second thing is don't assume just because they're experienced that they necessarily know everything and have the right experience for this task. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that I do is I question a lot of things. Um, and you can do that in a good way and in a bad way, but hopefully if you try to get people to motivate why they're doing something and their way of thinking, you know, the worst thing you can end up with is a situation where um, you get told, well, this is the way it's always been. Mm -hmm. That's the worst ever. That's a non-answer. Instead, ask yourself, you know, given everything we have today, is there a way we can make this better? Given everything we know today, with all the tools, is it worth doing better? Because mm -hmm. the truth is, you know, one of my greatest lessons as an entrepreneur is that while you probably can do every single thing better, uh, you also got to focus on the few things that matters. So I'm probably, you know, more, more so than anything else, I focus on very, very few things, but I keep repeating them over and over and over and over again. Um, and uh, I just focus obsessively on them. What are those few things well, that you repeat over and over again? I, I think a lot of it, um, you know, really kind of goes in phases. Mm -hmm. But in our case right now, you know, we're focusing, focusing aggressively sort of on growth. Mm -hmm. So, um, and just becoming, you know, bigger as a company in terms of numbers of users that engage with our products, more playlists, because we figured out the more playlists you have, the more likely you are to come back. Yeah. So then you can look at, okay, what are the most um, important metrics that are driving the company? And in our case, we've actually distilled everything to just one metric. That metric is daily active users. Mm -hmm. The more daily active users we have on our service, uh, the more um, likely they are to come back time and time and time again, which means in turn, they're more likely to build better collections that they can share with their friends, which means in turn, that they're more likely to pay um, or uh, generate impressions for our advertising team. Mm -hmm. So um, I try to simplify things, um, kind of distill it down to the um, least uh, common denominator, but then also just focus obsessively on that. So speaking of lessons, how about some of the dumbest things you've ever done oh, as an entrepreneur or as a leader? 
So um, these guys don't make the same mistakes. Well, you know, I've done a lot of mistakes. I've probably done every mistake in the book. Um, but I, I think some of the mo more important lessons I've had actually is it's so easy to say yes to things mm. because you think that as you know the company kind of evolves and even as you have more people it's like well this sounds like a reasonable idea well it, it, even if you in your head say this sounds like a reasonable idea that means no um, unless you're dead sure that this is the one thing we should do it's probably better to say no um, so I, I'd say my dumbest mistake is just taking on too much, doing mm -hmm. too much at the same time, which mm -hmm. never, ever works. Be really, really focused. Be obsessed about the th few things that matter and say no to everything else. Mm -hmm. It's really, really hard to do that. But if you focus on that and if you get that right, you're eventually uh, going to be able to do more things because you know that this kind of works. Um, and I think, you know, another one which is insanely important, especially as we move on, is... Um, I, again, it's it's this notion that um, hire fast and fire fast. And I know this sounds incredibly tough, but in so many uh, regards, as you meet people and, and you're working through these companies, like the life cycle of a company to go from zero users to 10 million users, as we've seen the last couple of weeks with Vidi and Social Cam, and the, can be the matter of weeks. Mm -hmm. If you then don't have the right team in place, and you try to kind of learn as you go, and it also, you know, the team isn't optimized for what you're doing, it's never gonna work. Yeah. And especially not if you're a small company. Every single person needs to carry their weight, and then more. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, again, um, I've in many cases, just because this is a nice person, and you know, they're doing all right, I've kind of given people too much slack, and that's um, uh, a mistake that I've done so many times. And I'd say the third one, which I will also learn, is that uh, don't sort of overpromise. I did this thing a couple of years ago. Um, again, being a bit naive, I said, well, surely we're gonna launch in the US pretty soon. Um, <laughs> and it ended up taking us about two years to launch from that point. Um, I didn't know how hard it would actually be. And I had to kind of eat that up, especially with TechCrunch, for uh, a very, very long period of time. Um, they even had like, uh, I think, you know, uh, April Fool's joke, April Fool joke yeah. about it. They had like a countdown on New Year's <laughs> Eve about it. And I'm like, oh, man. Uh, it just so, got more people waiting for it, which is good. Yeah, I mean, in, 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 in some way, I guess it was all press is good press. But mm -hmm. um, it, it was stupid on my behalf um, to kind of promise something that uh, we weren't sure that we were going to deliver. So these days, I, I try to... Um, under-promise and over-deliver. Cool. Well, let's do a few quick questions before opening it up to the audience here. Um, since you're in the music business, your three favorite new bands. Oh, um, so the first one is this uh, New Zealand uh, woman called Kimbra. She's absolutely amazing. You guys got to check her out. Um, on Spotify? Yes, on all, Spotify. All these are on Spotify. Of course, okay. of course. Everything's on Spotify. Um, and... Um, the other one um, that I gotta say is this um, electronic uh, DJ called Subtrack, mm -hmm. S B T R K T. He's spelled on Spotify. Really, mm -hmm. really cool music. Check her out. Um, and then to plug some Swedish one, if you haven't checked out Robin, you should. She's really, 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 really talented. Awesome. And uh, when we were having dinner in London a year ago, you told me about a really cool hobby that you have. What's that? Um, well, uh, except working, you mean, or... Well, actually, it, was, it came up differently. Daniel asked the entire table to share uh, what's the one thing that they spend money on that they probably shouldn't. And then he shared what his was. Well, um, yeah, so I collect guitars. Um, and this is, you know, one of the things that I've been doing for quite some time. So I, I buy overly expensive guitars and <laughs> I keep stacking them up to the point where... They're so expensive that I, I, I'm afraid of actually playing on them. <laughs> uh, so don't do that. It's an expensive hobby, and 
you know, and you then can you look don't get to use them. Yeah, yeah, exactly, which is even worse. Cool. And one last question. In, in uh, 2000, you saw this world where all media was going to be streamed to every device. In 2005, you saw a world where uh, identity was going to be through a portable system into all applications. In 2012, what's the world you see going forward that it could inspire this group of people to start interesting companies five years from now? Well, um, what I think is really interesting, so we talk about smartphones, and we all say, oh, that's the massive platform, etc. I actually don't think it's just about smartphone. I think it's about smart devices. And I think we're just kind of seeing the beginnings of that. Mm -hmm. We're going to see televisions. We're going to see cars. We're going to see all these things kind of transform into intelligent devices. But as that happens, I think one of the more exciting things for me is what sensors we're going to get access to mm -hmm. and what other means we're going to be able to use to mash that up both with what currently exists today. So I'll give you a great example. So um, there's a lot of companies um, doing, uh, for instance, um, you know, uh, the company um, Jambox, that does this up thing, which is great, another Kleine Parkins company, uh, or Nike Fuel Band, I think it's called, and uh, people that measure heart rate and actually kind of send it, or in my case, I have a wireless um, Wi-Fi um, scale that I get on and post it to Twitter and so on. Um, so there's all these sensors around us. And if you start thinking about that, um, and I'm just going to make one analogy to music, is if you're out running, imagine a future where you're out running and it knows your current heart rate mm. and it could alter the playlist uh, based on what you're currently, the tempo you're currently running to. This is one idea of what you could do with a sensor. Um, imagine more and more of these sensors going to be available everywhere so you can measure the temperature, you can measure you know, what payment system are close by. There's all these sensors and I really believe as we go to more and more intelligent device, devices that that's kind of a really, really huge area um, of disruption and really exciting companies. Yeah, hardware around. and software companies. Yeah. Well, thanks, Daniel. I appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, I think we're going to open it up to the audience. Um, just uh, are there? Are we passing mics for us? Or okay, go ahead, right here. Yeah, I have a question. Um, how long did it take uh, for you guys to close the deal with Rob at Universal? With Rob at Universal? Uh, how um, long did it take to close the deal with Universal Music? Um, so. We started negotiating um, around early 2007, and we launched in October 2008. So it took us more than one year um, to get that done. What was so complex at the time is there was really no one that had the type of execution we had at the time, because uh, this was you know going into the record labels at the time when they still had DRM, on iTunes and telling them to give away all their music for free uh, against, <laughs> in the future, making more money. It's a kind of tough sell. I don't really ad think that any one of you should go to a record label with that. Yeah, so, so the question was, uh, was he open to the idea? Um, yeah, he was. He's always been a very positive guy um, and very positive of Spotify. Um, but I think, you know, again, um, what, what is really unique about a record label, too, is it's rarely one person who decides. It's actually the label heads as well. So it's a group of 20, 25 people. And you can imagine, you know, going into a meeting, as Rob did, and say, hey, we're going to start giving away our music for free. Mm -hmm. um, where there were uh, record label presidents who might have been 60, 70 year old that have all their life sold physical discs and had just got around the idea to selling it on iTunes for 99 cents a piece. So it was a tough sell, but we eventually got there. and I guess uh, previous applications have been the iTunes as a response to increased piracy. How do you see piracy evolving in the next, say, five years, and what are the ramifications for other media industries? Um, so the question, I guess, was uh, how, how do we see piracy evolve over the next uh, five years? Well, 
I don't think you can ever stop piracy to begin with. Um, and there's always going to be a certain segment of people that um, want to um, take stuff and want to pirate stuff. But that segment, luckily, is pretty small. What most people do want is they want convenience and easy access. And if they can get it for free, of course, more people will do that than, than not. Um, but if something is easy enough, and this is, you know, again, the big innovation around Spotify is not the fact that it was like, oh, it's this Hail Mary moment where something was really, really different. Innovation for me is taking two things that are already known and putting them together and creating something new. So the new thing with Spotify was basically imagine iTunes, but you put it in the cloud and you put all the world's music behind it that you can access within you know, half a second. So it feels like you have all the world's music in your iTunes library. That was the innovation with Spotify. So um, you're asking me how I think it will evolve. Well, I think there's a lot of media types that still haven't found the right uh, service to match it. I think it's still obvious for me that, especially in Europe, where I'll give you one example. Game of Thrones, just recently, I read this article that says that Game of Thrones is the most pirated TV show ever. Um, and in Europe, I can understand it because, and I have all my American friends when I'm in Europe talking about, oh, did you see the last episode, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out, no, because it takes me one year before I can get it here. Um, and that sucks. So I had to go through VPNs and, you know, um, um, put it on my um, subscription account and I have to have an actual sling box and I have to do many, many, many things in order to get it legally where in all honesty it could have taken me three minutes on you know, Pirate Bay and I got the same thing. So unless the video industry or movie industry or TV industry solves that problem, I think it's still going to exist. It might even become more rampant. Um, I just think again... This is something where eventually the business opportunity will become so big that they will have to change. I think, again, as a consumer, I want all the world's content to be readily available the moment they release it. I'm not um, going to accept in the future that it takes a year for a great TV show like Game of Thrones to make it over to Europe if I'm there. I'm not going to accept that it's, you know there's all this content that I want to access uh, if I'm a German guy living in the U.S. and I can't. Um, and at, at the end of it, what, you know, the way I think about it as a user is the fact that, hey, look, if I'm willing to pay for it, what's the argument against giving it to me? Um, so I think we're going to head in that way, and hopefully if we do that, the reason for piracy will be less. So I'm, I'm not a Spotify user, so I might be wrong here. So uh, why are you guys limited to music and not like, why isn't you extend to movies? Um, so the question was, why are we limited to music and not doing movies and other stuff? Well, um, I, you might not have heard that it took us about two years to get the licenses for, for, for music. So doing it for video would have been incredibly much harder. Uh, but I also think, you know, this comes back to Solving one thing and solving it really, really well is super important. If you're trying to be everything for everyone, I promise you, you will fail. And in our case, the use cases of music is incredibly different than the one for video. Um, in music, for instance, you typically end up um, listening, building a collection, then listening to the same things many, many times. Whereas in video, it's... Um, much rarer that you do it and you typically just watch it once. So that means that you have to design the product entirely different. And if we designed it for both those use cases, it probably meant that we, we didn't design it ideally for either one. Thank you. Um, so it's kind of long one, give me a sec. Um, so I just wanted to know, uh, given Spotify's dependence on licensed content, and the fact that record labels can renegotiate uh, licensing deals every two to three years with terms favorable to them, um, how do you guys expect to turn a profit when a company like Pandora enjoying a lower set of content fees can't themselves do it? Um, so the question was, you know, given our reliance on content, how do we expect to turn a profit if uh, the content industry can renegotiate? the deal they have with us. 
So first and foremost, what's interesting about Spotify is we have two revenue um, opportunities. Um, so we actually get people to pay money uh, for our product as well as giving it away for free and funding it with ads. So that's entirely different from Pandora. Um, and just the pure base of math. So the average person in the U.S., if you strike it across the eligible population that can, can pay for music, spends $13 on music every year. Not more, not less. $13. If you're a paying subscriber of Spotify, you're generating $100 a year worth of income. That's a, obviously a much, much, much better model than what they're currently having. So that means that it actually sort of generates and increases the industry. So they want to keep doing that. But I also think, you know, at the end of the day, as Spotify grows and becomes bigger, obviously it becomes more of a balance between both sides. But I will also say that um, I think in the end, and I think the music industry has learned that lesson, that these days it's, it's about creating a partnership structure because it's the only way we're going to get the music industry back to scale again. Because again, it's not like they will build a music service. Uh, they've tried historically and it hasn't worked. So they need to have companies like iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, and others finding that this is a good business because it means that we can invest in making it even better, which in turn makes more money for them too. I'll let you just over in the back. Um, can you talk about what you see as Spotify's biggest competition and what <coughs> Um, I, I didn't hear the other part. I hear, heard uh, competition. Yeah, and, and just your competitive advantage. Sure. Um, so it's actually quite easy. The way we um, look at it from Spotify's perspective, our biggest competition is piracy. That's how we've always set it up. Again, we created Spotify to be an alternative to piracy. Um, so what we look at, and we when we benchmark ourselves against you know, other services that are out there, um, like Pirate Bay and, and um, you know, uh, Kazaa and what else might be out there. Um, we actually look at ease of use as the biggest single competitive advantage. And sometimes, and I know we are all kind of in this room, we're all thinking, oh, we got this feature and that means that someone's going to think much better of it. Sometimes the easiest answer is also the right answer, which is it's just a lot easier to use and it just works. Uh, that one is, I think, the biggest kind of oversight, especially we in the tech community make, is we try to pinpoint it to being all these different features where quite often it's just the fact that it was the shortest period from point A to point B that wins. So what we're focused on and with Spotify is just making sure that you know, as you go on to the Spotify service, that the shortest point from you getting your music, you being able to share your music with your friends, and you being able to discover music. And if we can solve those three problems, we're in a really good place. Right here in the middle. So you mentioned that it's important to have a unified goal. Like right now your metric is to grow your user base by 50%. So there's many ways to get there. And if there's discrepancy on how to get there, how to use it. Well, um, so the question was like, it's important to have goals, but what if there are multiple ways to get to that goal? Again, I think you as a team, what you always have to do is you have to discuss the strategy of getting there. And you have to sit down in a team and you have to agree what you think is the most viable <laughs> way. And I think today it's kind of actually a lot easier than ever before because if you think about the world where it was 10 years ago, it was not obvious what you should do. Um, I, you know, if you wanted to get traffic onto your website, um, did you do TV commercials or did you, um, you know, uh, buy a banner ad on Yahoo or what were you doing? And then uh, we got one platform, which was Google, where people started SEO optimizing and kind of getting more traffic from there. And now we're in a place where Google is a great traffic driver, but we got Facebook too. And we got um, iPhone and Android the ecosystem. So um, I would just say that like, uh, start with one channel and try to focus on that channel. And in your team, the great thing is none of them are kind of exclusive to the other. 
and they're all huge in terms of hundreds of millions of people. So just start with one and uh, do that and then kind of quickly iterate to the next platform and keep doing that. And in all honesty, in Spotify's case, it was um, when we started out, it was, um, we started with the one we thought was the most obvious one, which in our case meant Facebook because we thought music was the most social thing there is. Spotify integrating with new devices like Google Glasses? Um, so the question was, how do we see Spotify integrate with new devices like Google Glasses? Well, um, again, we're, we're a platform company. And so what we've done is we've created all these tools that will enable developers to build Spotify into their experiences. So Spotify today exists on kind of home um, theater devices, we exist in television screen, we exist in set-top boxes, we exist in cars. And um, it, most of those experiences we haven't built ourselves, but actually partners have that kind of optimized experience for, for that view. So, you know, in the specific case of Google Glasses, we don't have any immediate plans of being on there. But um, if I don't recall incorrectly, even in the video, I think they were playing music uh, where they just kind of showed off Google Glasses and um, it recorded video at the same time and you were able to kind of send that video with both music and the video of what you were looking at to your friend. Um, I think that sounds like a pretty awesome app. Um, and just in general, I think, you know, every app and every device has its own kind of unique characteristics and it's about merging and meshing that with that experience. Now that piracy is the biggest competitor to Spotify, uh, how do you feel about, um, I guess, illegal uTorrent downloads? <laughs> Oops. Uh, well, um, again, I, I think uTorrenting or uh, torrenting downloads exist for a purpose, right? Uh, right now, it seems like that's one of the most efficient distribution um, paradigms, especially for video. It's a really, really efficient protocol for doing that. Um, I don't pirate any content any longer. I used to do that, uh, which is kind of obvious. Um, and now I have to go through a lot of hoops um, in order to get the content legally. Um, so again, I think it's pretty obvious why it exists and why it's hugely popular, and I totally understand that. Um, I just hope that someone will build an easier service that people can use instead. Um, I mean, here in the U.S., we take Netflix for granted, but the truth is, um, in most of Europe, Netflix doesn't even exist. It's like, there's nothing. So, of course, people will do BitTorrenting or uTorrenting. One more question. One more question. Right here, you've been very patient. Sure. Um, this has to do with the idea of Spotify in terms of its relationships with artists and changing the music industry. And my question is, um, why can't you or will you in the future be able to upload or download your own music as an artist from Spotify and circumvent the entire uh, record company process? Um, so the question is why can't um, an artist upload their own stuff um, and thereby circumventing the labels? Um, I, I think again, you, you pretty much can do that already on Spotify. Um, there's like tons of aggregators where you can, uh, like one of them is Record Union. Basically it takes two seconds to register an account. You can upload your music there and it instantly pushes not only to Spotify, but it pushes to iTunes too. Uh, we haven't built our own download um, or up uploading solution, actually because of a few different reasons. One is it was never an early focus for us. Um, and and um, thereby not super important. And again, we try to focus really hard. Um, and there was all these other solutions as well that you could upload to. Um, but then I would say also, you know, the other problem, we really wanted to be a legal service from the get-go because our biggest thing for the music industry when we went to them was, hey, all the stuff we have is legal. So the problem that we'd have to solve is how do we make sure that you, in fact, um, 
are the rightful owner of your track if you're gonna we're gonna pay out money to you after your music gets heard on Spotify and we're already by the way and this is so interesting because every platform that takes off always gets gamed so in our case we have a ton of people that creates karaoke versions of content uh, that they mention as kind of being Madonna or whatever. And then they try to game our system to get higher up in the search results so that they can in turn get placement. So, um, you know, every week we have people uh, contacting us from labels or even artists themselves. It's like, hey, this is not my song, uh, but people are claiming that's me. Um, and they're gaming it. So, but I think that's like... If, if you have that problem, you're in a very good position because it means people care enough to actually start kind of using your platform. Um, but it's not, uh, you know, again, so to answer your question, musicians can already today upload their stuff uh, to Spotify. They just can't do it directly. Maybe one day they can, but it's not an immediate focus for us. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much. Thank you, yes. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.